I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello and welcome back to In AI We Trust. This week, we are delighted to have another guest co-host while Kay Firth Butterfield is on travel. I believe she's in Cannes as we speak. And so we are thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Kathy Baxter. You all may know her from her very active Twitter and LinkedIn feed where she shares tremendous resources every day about ethical, responsible AI practice. She is the principal architect of ethical AI practice at Salesforce. She develops research-informed best practices to educate Salesforce employees, consumers, and the industry on the development of responsible AI. Before being at, working at Salesforce, she's been at Google and eBay and Oracle. She has written the book on it. She has uh, written the book entitled Understanding Users. And she is also a very active and important senior advisor at Equal AI. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. I am so excited about doing this. We are very lucky to have you, and we are very lucky that we will be talking to someone who you've worked with, Mira Lane, and who is such a uh, does so much that impacts your work, and, and there's so much overlap between uh, what both of you do. But before we jump into our interview, I'd love to hear how's your week going. This was a this was a fantastic week. Um, uh, I am really honored to be a member of Singapore's. Uh, ethical uh, AI and data council. And we had our first, our Q1 council meeting this week. And it's just amazing uh, to see the work that is, that that's happening there. And um, so that was a, that was a really great high point of my week this week. I can imagine. Well, they're so smart to bring you on board with your deep expertise and your passion uh, and the fact that you're just so much darn fun to work with. So good on them. (laughs) And I look forward to seeing what you all come up with. Uh, It's been a fun week for Equal AI as well. There's been a bunch of different things, policy events and dinners. Uh, We got to go to a dinner that the HAI Stanford team hosted, hearing about their fascinating index report that has come out with some really important findings. Uh, We also got to be a panelist on the Practicing Law Institute panel yesterday for speakers for, uh, for about ethics and law. We were talking to lawyers, which, as you know, is so important to us to make sure that lawyers are partners in this effort as we identify risks and reduce liabilities. Uh, so that was so satisfying and fun, frankly, to hear about what they're hearing and seeing and, and give them some more tools on, on how to be better partners in responsible AI. Yeah, partnering between uh, responsible AI teams and uh, with legal is really important. You don't want a turf battle and getting into the whole debate of what is legal, what is ethical, but instead view it as a, a true partnership together. So true. I couldn't have said it better. And I love how you embrace that in your practice and bring in lawyers early to help you navigate as opposed to try and fix things at the end. And then it's a mess. Um, So I hope others will follow your good practice and really enjoyed that conversation. And now I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Mira Lane. On today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Mira Lane, who's the head of the Ethics and Society Organization at Microsoft. In this role, Mira leads a multidisciplinary group responsible for guiding technical and experience innovation towards ethical, responsible, and sustainable outcomes 
focusing on AI technology such as speech and language, computer vision, ambient devices, intelligent agents, and mixed reality. Prior to this role, Mira held various roles in Microsoft over the last 18 years. In addition to being a technologist, Mira is an artist who creates ceramics, video art, paintings, monoprints. You can find them online. I noticed that the ceramics were selling out quickly, so uh, you might want to go on and check them out. I did have my eye on some dessert plates. Um, so, so many things to cover based on your background and your experience. Mira, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So anyone who's heard your background, who's looked at your website, who's heard you talk, know that you bring a really, truly, deeply interesting lens to your work. Um, we'd love to start with talking more about you and your interests. You describe yourself as a polymath, an artist, a technologist. You've said, I believe that corporations need the power and insights of creative individuals in order to weave empathy, soul, and humanness into form and matter. You're a poet, it turns out as well, and deeply inspiring in how you're thinking about innovation. How did you become interested in AI and how do you intertwine your passion for art with technology? Oh, we could spend the whole time talking about some of this, I think, but um, I, I think I got interested in AI about six or seven years ago and I was coming off of the launch of Microsoft Teams. And um, I think there was a natural moment to take a break um, from work and kind of retool my skills and reflect on what I wanted to do next. And I was looking at the technology landscape and just saw a lot of really interesting things happening in the AI field. So, you know, generative adversarial networks were first introduced um, a few years before that. And I thought that there were some really interesting applications for artists in that category. And so I started to get interested in that. Um, I reached out to a few leaders around the company to see if there were open positions or, you know, just a way to jump into that space because I felt like it was time to, um, you know, explore a different avenue and AI seemed to be calling to me. And so um, I happened to land a spot in um, an incubation team that was taking kind of groundbreaking research that was coming out of Microsoft Research and productizing it. And as part of that, um, being so close to some of the cutting edge researchers in the company, I wanted to explore what these you know, GANs could do. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see if we could create um, a neural net that could mimic some of my artwork? And I found uh, a researcher who was like, yeah, I'll help you do that. And, um, and so we started a project where we took samples of my video art and um, even paintings and created a data set that kind of represented me and started to code up a neural net to see like, what would it generate? Um, and it was really interesting because we would like experiment with it. And, uh, you know, at some point it was like kind of banal and not very interesting. And um, we're like, well, how do we bring inspiration into this? So we thought, well, who are your inspiring artists? Let's bring some of that into the training set as well. And, um, and how could we make this um, a little bit more interesting and add more novelty? And so we would just explore and kick out uh, new images. And every, you know, every few days, I'd have a folder of new images to kind of go through. And we'd, um, we'd refine the algorithms through that. And you know, we learned a few things. Um, the GANs at the time were not as powerful as they kind of are right now. Um, 
but it would, you know, it would generate things that I thought were interesting and, you know, maybe something that would look like my work. Um, but they often generate things that were more like starting points. And so I thought from, from that standpoint, it was interesting because a lot of artists have this blank canvas problem. And I have that sometimes, like, what do I start with? So these networks were able to spit out really interesting starting points. Um, and, you know, thank goodness, not really replacing me as an artist, but um, but just an interesting idea of like being able to collaborate with a system and could I train it so it could be very distinctly me. And it got me really curious and it kind of pulled me into the space. Um, and as someone who has a background in tech, I just found it to be a powerful space to be in because we were kind of entering this new era of technology and lots of data and lots of computing power. And, um, and so it was just something that like was intellectually really challenging also. That is, that is really, really cool. Um, I, I think uh, the having that opportunity, like being at, at Microsoft uh, gave you this, this uh, fantastic opportunity to explore this new space between art and tech. I know in a, a previous interview, you said you had never expected to be working in a, a big corporation. So how did you uh, come to work at, at Microsoft and, and become the head of uh, ethics and, and society and, and build this entire team? Yeah, I think I kind of stumbled into Microsoft. I mean, I, I had done an internship at Microsoft as a, um, a student when I was in university and it was interesting. And I kind of just stumbled into it because I thought, well, what an interesting company. I, I enjoyed it, like being out in this area. Um, but what I really mean by that is I didn't expect to stay in a corporation for so long, because if you've seen that Charlie Chaplin video of the man that gets pulled through the gears of the corporate machine and then spit out at the end, it is a little bit like that sometimes. And you think about like, how long can you stay as a creative individual in a corporate environment without getting your soul chewed out? And that's what I really meant when I, when I was thinking about that. Um, but what I think is interesting at Microsoft is that you do get to jump around and work on lots of different things. It's a lot of companies kind of rolled into one. And then with entities like Microsoft Research, like you get to tinker on things as well. And so it's just a place that has a lot of novelty and interest and opportunity. And so that's like, that's kind of the space where, I mean, I was able to create this group called Ethics and Society at a company early in the AI days um, where we were like, you know what, we're, we're productizing some really powerful technology. Let's think about the effects of that. Let's think about who's being impacted. And this was before all of, you know, the companies in the industry, Microsoft or Salesforce or Google, where we had really developed strong policies. We knew that we had to, we had started putting that together, but then to invest at an engineering level and say, you know what, let's think about this at the same time while we're building the tech as policies being developed. I think that that's really unique. And so I was able to craft that role because I was running a design effort at that time. And I had said, hey, while I run design, why don't I also extend that to think about the ethics and the responsible side of tech. And it seems to go really hand in hand with design because you're thinking about people and how they're impacted and how they'll interface with tech. And so it just seemed like a natural extension and we just kind of grew from there. Um, and you know what we realized was that when you're in a company where we're shipping and building products, there's immense pressure internally and externally. The internal pressure is, hey, you have to meet these deadlines, you have to get 
product out the door quickly, you have to make sure you um, hit all our privacy and security and, you know, responsible AI requirements. And then externally, you know, there's regulatory pressure and customer pressure. And so all of these teams have so much um, intense pressure inward and outward pushing at them that they need some of these groups like mine that don't have that pressure, but can come and augment them and help them think through things that are a little messy. We don't know how long it will take and we need that space to be creative. And so that's why I think the team has been so successful is because we operate in that space where product teams need that kind of um, deep partnership um, and recognizing that, Hey, these are like, these teams are trying to do the best that they can with the pressures that they face and so, you know, having that kind of pragmatic approach that has a lot of compassion built in too, to say, look, we're just going to be partners in this and how do we build this together responsibly? Um, and that's something we need. And we, we're going to bring a design-centered lens to this because this is about designing tech for people and society. Um, and it's been really powerful from that standpoint, I think. What a fascinating journey, both for you and for Microsoft. And it speaks so highly of Microsoft, that they were willing to evolve, um, that they were at the forefront of recognizing these ethical challenges in the products that were being created and that they were willing to hear out someone like you who uh, they realized instead of uh, fearing what you were saying, they should embrace it, it sounds like, and, and incorporate those concerns as part of their infrastructure. Um, and, you know, it gets to something we often talk about on the show of, of responsible AI, uh, something we talk about and, and push for all the time really needs to be part of a culture. And it sounds like what you're talking about is a culture. When you talk about compassion, um, that says to me that that you're effectively implementing culture at, at Microsoft, that you are allowed to um, express your concerns and that you have a compassionate approach. Um, so anyhow, in my mind, that speaks to why you are well-known for responsible AI governance. But uh, I'd love to hear from you. How do you think uh, Microsoft became known as a leader in responsible AI governance? And what does responsible AI mean to you all at Microsoft? How did this become a priority that both you and the company uh, and others there could adopt and incorporate together? Well, there are so many people at Microsoft that work on responsible AI. We have such a multi-layered approach to all of this. There is um, an incredible policy team that is developing, you know, the base requirements that everyone at the company needs to follow when they're developing technology. There's an incredible research arm that's looking at cutting edge research and tools and techniques and approaches and working with product teams. And then there's groups like mine that kind of sit within the product teams and work together with them. And so um, and there's a whole champs community. Like there's just a whole set of activities and efforts that are underway. And I think that um, it's possible because of overall the company's culture. So you hear Satya talking about growth mindset. You hear him talking about culture and experimentation. And you need that. You need that culture developed top down and bottoms up as well, because that top down um, posture of our leaders that sets like what's permissible and what's possible. You're not fighting against it. It's you're kind of leaning into that culture and saying, yeah, we can go and ask these questions because our leaders expect us to do it. Our leaders talk about trust. They talk about responsibility. And so I think that this, the company's approach in general, like there is the cultural like it's very, it's fertile ground for cultural development. And, um, and so we think about that from like the top-down standpoint, but we also create mechanisms for us to talk 
and experiment and question things. We have workshops that we run that bring teams together and you know, run them through case studies. We work with leaders as we're you know, shipping product and talk about you know, how do we shape this thing so that it is the most thoughtfully designed product ever? And how do we make that as part of product quality and not something that's seen as a tax? And so all of these types of things, I think are really deliberate processes and practices. There are lots of groups coming together um, there's like a whole ecosystem of thinking here. And so, you know, for, I think a company like Microsoft, it just seems really natural based on the way that we have operated. And I think we've learned a lot over the years. Like I don't, Microsoft was not like this, I don't know, 15 years ago, right? This is a different type of company that we've evolved into where we found that if you lay down the cultural framework and you nurture that, it yields returns over a really long arc of time, but um, but that cultural like foundation is so important because it allows you to question what we're doing and then start to like say, hey, maybe we should slow down a little bit or maybe we should design this a little differently or how do we do this together with all of these other groups and bring everyone into a room? And um, so I, you know, I really do think that a lot of it is from the top-down culture of just, you know, caring about trust, caring about people and um, and wanting to do something that's right for the world too. We're a huge company. <laughs> We've noticed. But yeah. before we, we jump into another area, I'd love to just dig a little deeper with you on this. I think it speaks so much to the culture, again, that there is an ethics and society organization. Um, it also is something we talk a lot about. Kathy Baxter, in fact, is one of the speakers in our badge program talking about operationalizing principles. So it's hard enough to come to the values and the principles and establishing uh, what your company is going to stand for, but then oper operationalizing it is everything, uh, the hardest part. We would love to hear more about what your organization does and, and how you organ operationalize these principles. Yeah, so my organization, um, we sit in the design um, discipline. And what we do is we end up working very closely with product teams early on. We think about the part of that life cycle where we need to bring in external stakeholders, we need to understand the effects of our technology. And so we do a lot of that early design thinking that includes, you know, understanding like how might this cause harm? How might this impact a certain population in a certain way? What might the right mitigation strategies be? And how do we shape product? Um, in the past, we've done more work around tooling and working with data scientists. We still do some of that. But um, you know, what we found is kind of embedding into the design culture has been really powerful because a lot of the technologies we build need to intersect with people and society. And, um, and so design just seems like a natural place for a group like mine to be given the type of work that we do. And so in, in terms of like that overall process, there's definitely a whole process around developing technology and, you know, making sure that we have um, visibility into all the systems. You might've heard Microsoft talk about our sensitive uses process. There's all of these types of layers in terms of, you know, how the company operates in terms of where we um, spend most of our time, it is in that design thinking phase and um, really shaping things early on and understanding, you know, how does a technology work? How do people need to interface with it? Where are there edge cases and stress cases that we need to be aware of? Where do we need to go do some exploratory work and, um, and understand like new interaction models and things like that? So we spend a lot of that time early on in the process versus later on when we're like tracking or monitoring and, you know, managing a system. 
As an AI practitioner, I've been incredibly grateful for all of the uh, the work, those tools and things that you have shared. I know I myself ha- have definitely leveraged uh, some of those tools and methodology, like the harms modeling framework, the judgment call game, um, community juries. Can you uh, tell uh, our, our audience who might not be as familiar with these amazing tools uh, a little bit about them and and uh, how you develop them and and how they might use them. Yeah, for sure. So let me start with um, the exercise that's called judgment call, and um, we developed this really early on because we were at a place where people didn't remember all of our principles and didn't know what they meant and. Um, didn't know like, well, what does a stakeholder really mean? And so this was like many, many, many years ago. And so what we did was we said, well, let's create a few simple exercises. Think of these as like icebreakers as we get into a room and as we start working through a problem space. And um, it's a really simple card game of um, a set of cards that are principles, uh, Microsoft's principles around fairness um, and accountability and transparency and, and so on. And then a set of cards that represent stakeholders. And this is where... Um, you get to kind of put on that um, creative hat and say, okay, well, what types of stakeholders are going to be using these technologies? Who are the direct ones that we obviously know about? And then who are the indirect ones? And this includes even like future generations. And so you make a list of all of those, you put them on cards. And then there's a set of cards that are around um, just ratings. So the ratings one to five, and you get dealt one of each, a principal, a stakeholder, and a rating. And so what that does is it helps you construct a review of a product. And so you put yourself in the position of a stakeholder, um, you align to a principle and you think about writing a three-star review on a product and what would you say? And then you do it again. You get one star, another stakeholder, another principle. And what this does is it creates and generates a set of um, examples of how someone might interact with the system. And it just gets you into that mode of developing that kind of moral imagination of what might go right, what might go wrong, and getting people comfortable. And what's actually interesting is not the output of that game, but the interesting thing is in the context of a card game, you create a safe space where people can talk about things that are problematic um, or beneficial. And that context of that card game creates that kind of like psychological safety to talk about things you might be worried about. And so that's, I think the important part of that one. Um, The other one you mentioned is community jury. And what we found here was as we were developing certain pieces of technology, um, we looked at the composition of the teams that were working on them and realized, obviously, that there are a lot of stakeholders and um, and people that were kind of missing from the group. And so community jury is, is a research methodology. And what we do is we bring in people that are directly or indirectly affected by the tech we bring them together with a technologist and they co-create together. They get to um, hear what people are thinking about in terms of building tech. They get to give feedback. And there's kind of this like virtuous cycle of input and, you know, kind of thinking, and it's a rich conversation. So it's not just, you know, evaluative design or research. It's really like this dialogue that we create with people who would be using this technology and you bring them together with the technologist. And so there's like a whole methodology around how you recruit, how you bring them together, how you kind of pull out the insights and what you do with them afterwards um, in that one. And then the last one that you mentioned was around um, this harms framework. And one of the things we found was when we were thinking about harm, we all agree we don't want our technologies to do harm. 
But then we all said, well, what do you mean by harm? And well, what do you mean by harm? And okay, well, maybe we need a taxonomy. Maybe we need categories. And so what's really important in this one is, is that category structure and, um, and having a shared vocabulary around things that we are worried about. Things like, um, you know, uh, loss of IP, identity theft, issues around misattribution, issues around um, electronic waste, and being able to give people, like, here's like lists of harms and definitions, and it gets you thinking, and it helps you like create a framework for how you might want to categorize the impact, the scale, the severity, the likelihood, um, the, you know, whether the system can easily be adapted or misused. And it just gives you like a lot of vocabulary around how to think about and talk about it. And because you have shared vocabulary, then you can say, okay, well, let's use these as constraints for our design so that we don't cause these harms. But, um, but oftentimes like we're missing shared vocabulary and that's what's really valuable in that exercise. Well, Mira, it, it, it is fascinating to hear how you've created these tools that uh, are so critical to addressing these deep challenges in, in society, uh, language barriers, cultural understanding, AI risk identification, and gamified it. Uh, I would love to hear if there's if you could share any use cases that have been illuminating, fun, surprising. Uh, did you ever use this at a party and, and have it come out to really interesting conversation or, or outcomes? But if you don't feel like answering that, or even if you do, I also want to dig a little deeper on this cultural piece that you're talking about here uh, in the intersection of AI and culture, which I know you've talked about before, and I'd love to have you expand more about what you see as that intersection and, and what we should know about your approach to it? Yeah, I mean, um, I think this uh, idea of creating the cultural environment so that you can have these honest conversations is really important because um, there's always going to be new AI technologies. Like now we're all talking about, you know, large language models and there's always going to be something new. And the question is not, um, can you handle that new thing in, with a specific tool, but do you have a culture that is robust enough to handle whatever comes at you? And so that cultural aspect is really important to me because there's um, uh, there's a need to have people who can be very flexible and who can have that like the ability to ask questions in a safe way where you're not going to feel like um, your rewards or you're like you're going to get impacted career wise or there's going to be any issues with you bringing up a concern. And so what we've been trying to do is create a space where people know how to ask questions. They can raise their hands. They don't need to feel like they have to be an ethicist or a philosopher, or it's only for certain groups of people, like everyone can do this. And so we're trying to create that safe space where leaders are talking about it. Leaders are publicly committing to it. Um, they have the vocabulary they have, like they know how to um, bring groups together and even have hard conversations about like, well, why are we doing this? And you know, what concerns do you have? Um, if you think about just like I said, any new piece of tech, whether it's AI or not, Having a you know a rich enough culture that can handle those thorny questions is is important because then you can create the process that makes sense for your organization or the tools that make sense for that technology and invest in it because you see that there's value and return in doing that. But if you don't have that culture, it, I think it's like whack a mole at that point. And so you're just going to be fighting and, and being very reactive versus being proactive about um, doing it right from the beginning. And the thing that I've been really impressed with, um, and I think this is, again, something that is really nice about Microsoft, is that a lot of leaders early on recognize that this is like about product quality. 
And so they started reframing responsible AI in some ways where they're like, hey, you know what, if I do this, my product is better. And, um, and as they started talking about it as quality, we saw our customers coming over to us and saying, actually, you guys are doing something really thoughtful here. We appreciate that this is resulting in higher quality product. And they started like, we start, we get more customers coming to us because of that approach as well. And so again, like thinking about this is just fundamental quality. It's not a tax. You don't do it afterwards. Um, and it's just a part of like how you think about building great product where a lot of people are using it and it's expected of us. So again, I think that's part of the culture because you have to invest in it. And sometimes it means you slow down a little bit so you can speed up later. And sometimes it means you don't pursue something. And sometimes it means, you know, well, let's get more people in the room and let's bring some experts in so we can do it right. And being open to that and having budget for that and funding and, and headcount, all those types of things. So I definitely think that cultural aspect for me is like you invest in that and it yields over that long arc. It's not easy to KPI or OKR or say, okay, well, here are the metrics. Um, but if you believe in it as part, if it's part of the way that you grow and think as an organization, then you definitely see the returns in product quality for sure. And you retain talent as well, and you get more customers as a result. I agree a hundred percent with, with those points. I remember, I think going back to 2015 or 2016, when I first started reading about, um, uh, responsible AI at, uh, Microsoft, I don't even know that that was really like a term that was largely used, but I remember reading it on your website, um, in terms of accessibility and, uh, Microsoft has such a strong deep history advocating for accessibility. And uh, so I I thought that was fascinating to um, put this not in a context of, of ethics, um, but this human-centered design of AI and thinking about it from an accessibility and inclusiveness standpoint, I just absolutely loved. Can you tell us a bit about the responsibility that you feel and um, maybe what is the responsibility as well of the engineers, developers, and executives when you're creating these AI-enabled tools, especially uh, the, uh, as you described, the sensitive use case ones? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think everyone that you speak to feels an immense sense of responsibility to do it right. And, um, and nobody wants to have anything go out the door that um, is going to cause harm. Um, and then, so the, the, I think the challenge we have sometimes is um, we don't always have all the tools to, ready to go. And so, and some of these can't be toolified. And so some of it is like more process oriented. Um, there's very deliberate processes at the company in terms of how you develop and how do you like, um, how do you think through the development of some of these technologies? Um, what I, what you will see around the culture is that everybody wants to do this right. They're not always sure how to do it. And this is where there's a lot of like cross company collaboration that happens, particularly in, in areas where you're like, okay, this one's kind of thorny. Well, how do we bring together experts from around the company? And so you'll see a lot of V teams that, do, that get created um, at Microsoft um, and there are lots of different working groups uh, because we know that there aren't really easy fixes and checkboxes that you can quickly go and deploy. Um, and I do think, Kathy, like you were saying, inclusive design really set some of the foundation for this type of work because um, it is around, you know, designing around uh, 
um, a disability or um, designing for one, but then being able to extend to many. And so kind of thinking from that standpoint of like um, it being a process and it being very deliberate, um, but across the company, there's in like a tremendous amount of like duty and responsibility that's built into to designing and building all of this. You see us talk about it all the time. So um, it's definitely been like really embedded deeply into the core over the last few years. I'd love to learn more about what you're talking about here. It sounds very powerful, this design thinking uh, and how you have embedded this in your team and across the company. Uh, you've had a, a powerful quote I read, uh, the stakes are high, so we shouldn't relegate design thinking solely to those with design in their title. As a noun, design is a profession, but as a verb, it's the act of considered construction. Um, can you tell us more about, again, how do you operationalize a, a thoughtful, deep, insightful principle like that? And, and how do you get others, your engineers, the, uh, the partners you work with across the company to also think about these elements of design in their work? Okay. Well, I mean, that's one, not an easy um, uh, solution, I guess. But um, the, the thing that works is, you know, what's distinct about my team is we operate on you know, very um, deep problems. We work on them. We're not a group that goes and implements large processes for the company. What we do is we work through particular problem spaces with groups and by going through it together, they learn. And so it's one of those, like you teach it once and then they learn how to do it. And then it kind of gets built in their culture. And we saw this with a team that we worked with a few years ago where we kind of, we worked really closely with them on some of our emerging tech around face and speech and mixed reality. And we embedded a lot of this thinking into um, the team just through the act of working through it together. Recently, they're working on some, you know, uh, new products. And right from the beginning, they set up a whole ethics effort and pulled together a V team and said, oh, we know how to do this. And so the way that we work is through those small engagements. And we do enough of them in pockets um, around, you know, cloud and AI. And through that, those teams learn, and then they kind of bring other groups along. And so what we're trying to do is like, we're trying to teach through doing. And, um, and through that act, they're able to then teach and do um, on their own as well. And I think that's how you really learn. Like you can have people watch videos, you can give people lists of things to do, you can give them tools to go and do it, but you do have to take people through the process, particularly when it's requiring a new muscle that they have to develop. And that's what you have to do for folks that aren't in a design discipline. When you think about the design discipline, if you engage with designers, user researchers, people that do this type of thinking as part of their practice, it's a very different conversation. We were in a design workshop, I don't know, two weeks ago. Um, and it was a workshop we would traditionally do with, you know, our engineers or PMs. And we brought into design. Designers were like, oh, yeah, we get this. Boom, 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 boom. They started just riffing on it and thinking about it because they are in that natural space where they're interfacing with end customers or end stakeholders and the technology. And they are these folks that are kind of brokering or mediating that um, experience between the two. And so it's for them, it's a natural extension to think about, okay, well, who are the stakeholders? How might they be impacted? Well, let's bring them in. Let's talk to them. They already have processes around that. And so from that standpoint, the design community is just a natural place and they, they are already understand it. We just have to add a few more things to their vocabulary. And then on the other side that, you know, PMs and engineers, we work through it together and they're like, oh, I get that muscle. That's what design thinking means, or that's what it means to do this. And then 
they feel more confident they can do it again themselves. We don't need to be around anymore. And so from my standpoint, it's always like start small, work through something really messy together, develop that muscle and confidence, and then they're off. They can go do it. Well, let's go do it somewhere else. It's hard at a big company because we do so many of these, but it starts to snowball after a while too, right? And this is again, like you have to have durability in your investment. You have to say, I'm willing to look past three months or six months. I'm willing to invest over multi-years because this is again, a culture effort and one where we're building that moral imagination or flexing that muscle that we didn't necessarily have built into some of those disciplines. So we're just, we're trying to do it on the ground. And then when you combine that with the groups that are doing broad horizontal efforts around the company, it becomes quite powerful. They fit together really well. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about how you have um, uh, expanded this uh, process and this culture and this ethical spidey sense or moral muscle across the company. Uh, You've you've got a large team uh, and you've been doing this for years now. But what advice would you have for an individual that is trying to start a responsible AI practice at their their company? How how would uh, they even begin? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean... I think this is where um, it's like find the core people that want to do this as well and, and start pulling together uh, like-minded individuals because it's hard to do it alone. And, um, and so you need um, a small group of folks that are like, yeah, we believe in this and we want to do it together. And then I think um, it's really important to understand the landscape of challenges that you're dealing with because um, depending on that, you might have to operate very differently. So one of the things we do is we do like a landscape analysis across the product teams that we work with. And we say, okay, let's look across this and figure out like, where would it really help to embed and to help product teams? And so we figure out like, where are the areas that we think we need to prioritize um, for product development? And so I would say, you know, find like, the like-minded people, figure out like what your landscape of opportunity and, um, you know, where you want to spend time looks like. And I bet on a lot of these groups, like there are people in um, some of the policy organizations that can partner, there are people in engineering and just start pulling together that core group and appealing to leadership as well. A lot of leaders do want this type of work and having a leader sponsor the effort is um, is super important. I think without that sponsorship, it becomes a really big uphill battle. Um, and there's going to be times where you want like a leader to lean in. And so I think this is where like finding an advocate and an ally um, in the leadership layer is super important. Um, so it's kind of like that bottoms up and up, you know, top down effort as well. Such useful, practical advice, and I hope it'll be so helpful to those out there who are starting this out on their own at different companies and um, can hopefully follow your path. As one follow-up to that question, we are very familiar with the success you've had in building this culture and the responsible AI. Are there any pitfalls you've encountered? Are there challenges that you think those who are trying to follow your path should be aware of? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think some of the challenges we found are on technologies that are very complicated um, where the solution isn't a quick fix. So when I think about 
um, some of our more, you know, like our platform technologies around speech or face or, or you know, spatial type of AI, um, trying to make some of those uh, work for, you know, all of our customers, all different kinds of demographics, um, those types of problems end up having a lot of deep work that needs to happen. And so um, some of the challenges end up being like, hey, we need to go ask for more money because we need um, to get more data or we need to go and refine this thing. And it's going to be a long arc. Uh, people might want us to be able to solve it really quickly, but it actually requires deep investment. And so I think some of those challenges, um, one, there's not easy solutions to those. And some of them require um, a long arc of work. And so, you know, having kind of that like endurance and being willing to um, have leaders say, okay, yes, we're going to take a long bet on this one um, and just understand that some things can't be quickly solved is probably one of the biggest challenges uh, in the space because um, we may not even understand the problem well enough. We don't necessarily know what's the underlying issue. And so sometimes like we've had to bring external experts that um, are deeply um, steeped in, you know, categories where we're like, hey, we don't know enough about this. Let's bring people in and um, do some deeper thinking. So it's, I think that that's the challenging part in product development because the clip is so like, it's so fast in terms of wanting to ship and get things out the door. So slowing that down and being willing to say, okay, this is going to be a long investment and let's kind of work through that. I think that's been some of the bigger challenges, to be honest. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is an important reality that we all need to be mindful of while we are so focused on what's ethical, what's building trust, um, what is building this culture. We have to be mindful at the other end. There is this business reality of consumers and, and shareholders and uh, the wider universe that wants quick and 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 quick returns returns and clear uh, investment returns. So thank you for sharing that insight. I hate to bring this conversation to a close, but um, we'd have to obviously be mindful of everyone's time and uh, reality. So one question we ask all of our guests, and I'm very excited to ask you, given your deep experience in responsible, trustworthy AI, if there's one thing you could do to help our world achieve responsible artificial intelligence, what would you wish for? I would really love it if we could be, um, if people were more comfortable sharing the challenges that they have dealt with um, and what they have done to overcome those because that's how we learn. And so I know this is a space that's highly vulnerable for a lot of people and, um, and it's hard to talk about some of those, like here's where we failed or here's what has been really broken. Um, but I wish that was a little bit more open and that would help the community overall learn from each other uh, and maybe move, make faster progress. What a great answer and one that we will uh, look forward to seeing you realize or help supporting you in your efforts to, to realize that goal because you're absolutely right. We will all learn so much faster if we can be open about our, our mistakes, our mishaps and and build and grow together. Mira, thank you so much for all of your insights, for taking the time to share with us today and, and for all that you're doing. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Kathy. Well, Kathy, as we expected, talking to Mira was so illuminating. She's has, has such deep experience in this field and has such a wonderful way of approaching her work with responsible AI. What were some of the big takeaways for you? 
I love the the focus on the inclusive and human centered design that that they take and how that has informed so many of their processes like community juries and bringing in communities that are going to be impacted by their technologies to really be part of that process uh, and how they reach out and educate different parts of their organization so that everybody is involved and it creates this snowball effect throughout the organization. So it creates this force multiplier of one plus one is three. And so hearing how they've, how they have evolved over time, but it's always been centered in this uh, human centered design approach to the work um, was really interesting. I agree. And, you know, we often talk about the importance of culture in a company in order for it to thrive, in order to build trust. Um, And particularly when we're talking about responsible AI, it has to be built from within in order for it to be responsible and trusted once it leaves the company, Uh, something I know you're very familiar with given your day in, day out work. Uh, So it was very interesting to hear some of the pieces she was talking about that clearly were important contributions to building that culture. She talked about the compassion she feels for the others on the business side who have these demands on their time. And I love the fact that it was not an adversarial relationship of her trying to pause them. She finds a way to use compassion to support their work. And I'm sure as a result, makes it easier for them to hear her messages and, and work with her um, and, and how this is really an investment. And there's just no way around it because um, there's going to be always, always something new. Uh, you're going to have to invest in your team so that they can respond and get, not get knocked around each time there is this, this new development, uh, whether it be a law, a regulation, a harm, uh, a new innovation, a technology that you hadn't been prepared for. Um, and, and she showed how that investment really pays off uh, and how part of that investment, it sounds like, is by starting off operating in small groups. I mean, I think that takes patience. I imagine that a big company, um, sometimes it must seem too small to be operating in these groups. But, you know, as we know from working with the badge program, it requires that one-on-one conversation, these small conversations to enable the discussions you need to be able to have in order to identify the problems and to work through solutions and to build that trust again. So uh, I thought that was really helpful uh, to hear what she's doing, to hear about her broad background and 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 hear some of her insights. And uh, I thank you so much for joining us today. It was so much fun to do this with you. Yeah, this was great. It was such a such a fun conversation. And uh, I I know I learned a lot and uh, I think others uh, are really going to eat up this interview. I agree. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 